0: Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. On this episode, we have Nicole Hu, co founder and CTO of One Concern, a predictive artificial intelligence platform that aims to help communities prepare for and mitigate natural disasters. Here's Nicole.
1: Stanford's not just special to me because uh, I'm I'm an alumni here, but also because we started One Concern right here four years ago. It was here where I met Tim and Ahmed, my co-founders, where we eventually uh, became friends. And we became friends because we shared common values. Uh, if you've gone through our demographics for the co-founders, we are very different. I, I'm, I'm an Asian woman, Ahmed's Muslim Indian, and Tim's uh, uh, Caucasian from the military. But, you know, we had fun at Stanford always talking about large problems and just really getting to know each other. Now, one fine summer of 2014, Ahmed went back home to Kashmir. And if, if I'm not sure if you know about this, but Kashmir, India had one of the largest floods that year. Uh, a flood which they hadn't seen in several decades. We tried very frantically to reach out to him. Uh, We would see the news talking about how many hundreds of people ended up losing their lives. And we couldn't reach out, we couldn't uh, connect with him, and it was very, very scary. Uh, Ultimately, we did end up connecting with him to figure out that his family and him were safe after the flood. However, when he came back uh, to Stanford, he talked about so many stories related to the Kashmir flood, and it was pretty modifying. It was a disaster in all sense. Uh, there was complete chaos after the disaster. You would have no sense for the emergency rescue to figure out where they should actually go, who should they actually rescue. You had thousands of people abandoned on the rooftops uh, with, with for several days, and you have hundreds of people either drowning or being washed away by the flood. And we wondered, why is this still a problem? And and why is in the 21st century, why is nobody thinking about it? And what can we do to help Uh, just being graduate students here? A a little while later, we got the opportunity to work in a class project together. It was the machine learning project at Stanford, as well as the probabilistic earthquake engineering uh, class at Stanford. And we, we took that opportunity to figure out, can we actually solve that problem we saw in the summer of 2014? And, and what can we do to reduce that chaos? The goal there was just, you know, let's find a way to figure out what exactly the problem was. And the problem we tried to resolve was, can we provide a real time granular understanding of which buildings and which people are in what state of collapse during a disaster? So that was a problem statement. Uh, our backgrounds of computer science, structural engineering and earthquake engineering led to it being focused mostly on seismic initially. And, and we were very happy with the results. Uh, it was surprising because it, it wasn't done before, uh, but there's a lot of uh, physics and science already there in structural and earthquake engineering. All we did was sort of understand the features present there and really convert that in a more granular uh, and, and real-time solution. We're happy with the algorithm we created, but uh, what we were more pleasantly surprised was that when we presented this algorithm in the the CS229 machine learning fair, a lot of professors came up to us, a lot of investors came up to us and said that what you have is applicable and and you can create a real product here. Now, we were taken a little aback because we never thought of starting a company or creating a product. Uh, and none of us had experience running a business before. Uh, Two thirds of us were immigrants, myself and Ahmed. And I'm not sure uh, how, whether it's a similar uh, thought process, but when you're an immigrant, generally you come to Stanford, you know, your thought process is work hard, study hard, get good grades, and then find a reputable place to go to so that you can then give back to your family who sacrificed so much to just make sure that you come here. So, so when somebody came up to us and said, you know, you should not think about the idea this way. Think about what a uh, product could look like. It was a little hard for us uh, because that meant that there is obviously going to be risks associated with creating uh, a company and we didn't have any background uh, associated to that. So what we instead did is we tried to see whether what we're hearing from our professors and from, from the investors, is that really real? So, so we cold called a bunch of different cities, a bunch of different emergency officials. And we asked them that, hey, you know, we have three grad, graduate students here. We have this algorithm. We really don't know whether or not it will be helpful or not can we spend a few hours with you to just understand is this really a problem and can we, can we do some impact here? And we're surprised that instead of them spending a few hours, you know, they ended up spending several days with us. Uh, the hope and the excitement we saw in these city officials, I, I think that was the final push to make us say that you know, we have to do this. Um, it, it sort of uh, came to light that it, it is a responsibility And if we don't do it, will anybody else think about this problem or will this problem keep repeating itself? So then all the three of us, the three co-founders, we had a really hard conversation, at least actually several hard conversations about what we would have to give up in terms of our previous uh, ideas and what does it mean to commit to to a mission and what does it mean to commit to a company. Now, while I talked a little bit about you know, my uh, and Ahmed as immigrants, you know, are our, our problems. Tim himself was raising a family. So, you know, what would that mean in terms of, of, of his responsibilities? Uh, but at the end of those conversations, we said, you know, we are all in. You know, we have to do this. Uh, and once we, once we figured out that this is the problem we want to solve, we then started thinking about the next step. The next step is, you know, continuing our conversations on what the product would look like with the cities, but also figuring out uh, that we cannot build a very complex machine learning pipeline for disasters with just the three of us. So building a team, building something uh, actually feasible. So that meant trying to figure out, do we want to actually uh, do this on our own, raise money ourselves or, or start looking at investors? It was hard for us to pitch in money ourselves, you know, being immigrants and all. And so that meant that we did have to go through the investor route. Now, uh, now that was a little surprising as well. Because when we went to investors, we thought, you know, obviously these cities are so excited. You know, we heard about product market fit, you know, customers really like it. So, you know, investors should definitely jump on this idea and help us through. But that wasn't what we saw. For around nine months, uh, we mostly heard rejections. Uh, and it's very hard to hear that because along with the risk you're taking, you hear somebody really experienced with a lot of uh, expertise in building a business coming to you and say saying, you, know, you have a noble idea, but it's just an idea and you need to give it up. I have an anecdote of a particular investor which we were really, uh, you know, we really respected. And that was one of the meetings, which I still remember. We went into the meeting, we gave our pitch deck um, and, uh, and the investor said, you know, if an earthquake happens, I'm just going to walk out and go to my neighbor's house. Yeah, this is such a silly idea. you should start thinking about something else completely and you wasted so much time. So nine months of not or just hearing rejections nine months of not knowing, basically collecting debt, uh, and then nine months of real big fear from your visa process. You know, what's going to happen? Can I still stay here? Do I have to go back to India? It was pretty scary for us. But instead of having that bring us down, what we did was we took a step back and we said, you know, what are we not doing right? We we didn't blame the investors or the feedback. We realized that there's something missing in what we are doing, which is why we couldn't portray our story um, to to uh, the investors when talking to us, and so we later realized that the problem was twofold. One problem was we weren't talking to the right set of investors. You know, there are different investors with different investment thesis. So there are few in the seed stage who definitely want to look at evidence in the market. You know, put a strong ratio or weight on that as part of investment in your company. And given that there was no earthquake, GovTech product out there, you know, just really high risk. Whereas there were other investors who put a lot of uh, weight on the team, uh, is there a need, you know, and that the team's gonna figure it out, like really large focus there. So we realized that we need to start looking at, you know, these investors. The second thing we realized was the what was missing in our pitch was we always talked about the vision, but very little about the feasibility of the business. And we, knowing that we didn't know that too much, we took whatever help we could get. We went to Stanford Venture Studio, talking to all the Stanford graduate students there, pitching several hundreds of times and, and just brainstorming about what could be wrong. We talked to investors for advice even the people who rejected us, and telling them, what could we have done better? What is actually the problem? And we, we amalgamated all that information in, and ergo, and eventually finding the right investor and, and helping them understand exactly the perspective of why this idea should be present was what founded One Concern. So uh, fast forward today, we grew from the team of three, to a team of 80 um, and our mission is for a world of resilience where we see resilience in the three pillars of safety, equity, and sustainability. And the, we obviously expanded from seismic to floods and fires. And to talk about what the issue in seismic is, when an earthquake happens right now, um, what, what, what is in the hands of emergency responders? There's two things you might get. One is a map wherein entire neighborhoods or cities are, color, are colored a single color, you know, red, yellow, green, telling them that that is the impact for a city. The second thing is you've probably seen it on Google. It's a shake map. You see really large red concentric circles on the map, um, and that's sort of what a responder is supposed to take in and and do those life-saving decisions. So when you think about why the chaos follows after, it's obvious, you know, just looking at a blurry map, how can a first responder know what to do when, when several thousands of people need help? So we moved from that idea into the idea on the left, uh, really focusing on going really granular on a block by block level and even building level, helping people understand which, uh, which buildings are in what sort of collapse minutes after the earthquake happens. We not just do uh, building level information, we understand, understood that the people component is very important. So who resides in those buildings? Uh, are they low income? Are they senior population? Are they children? Because the resources you spent, you send during a disaster are very different based on the vulnerable population who are affected. Hurricane Katrina is an example wherein most of the, there were a lot of senior citizens who were abandoned and they, de- they needed an influx of blankets because they were shivering during the hurricane. But no one knew exactly what was the ratio of people who were affected. So that's the second component we focus on uh, in, in, a, in our product. And finally, the third component is uh, we don't want to just predict which buildings are down. All we want to help cities understand is which, what is the state of the city, so that implies not just looking at direct causes of impact, but also looking at secondary and tertiary uh, causes of impact. So is, is your power sector down? Is your healthcare down? Is your water system down? And how does that ultimately go and affect citizens? To give you an example, you might have the strongest hospital in the world, which might be up during the big one, and during a big earthquake. But if the Hetch system is down, or if the power system is down and there's no sort of backup plan, it still means that your healthcare is affected. It still means that citizens aren't getting that rescue. So how do you portray a cascading effect of dependencies along with the impact map to your first responders? Uh, Flood, we just released uh, last November, uh, and we chose floods specifically because it has a larger impact. uh, And it is definitely... Uh, the impetus of one concern, the Kashmir flood. It's more or less similar to what we do in seismic. Uh, The only difference is that you could actually forecast five days into the future. Now, uh, uh, when Hurricane Harvey happened or any hurricane happens, what data these cities understand is a storm is coming, it's gonna come in three days, you're gonna get five inches of rainfall, but how does that help you know who to evacuate? And how does Hazard help you know who's going to end up drowning in that particular incident? So it's a pro- providing that really granular impact and, upg- and updating your accuracy as and when you get real-time input from on the ground. We are very transparent about how accurate or inaccurate our models are. In fact, uh, that's what cities love. They want to know how can they help us make our models even more accurate. We want them to be able to make those decisions after understanding where our models wouldn't work and where our models will work. And the final third component, which is still in development is fires. Fires are very close to California. Uh, The costliest disaster of last year was the wildfire in California. Now the issue of impact knowledge and situational awareness is even la- is probably larger or or equal to that of floods and fires uh, floods and earthquakes you have uh, fires moving at 80 miles per hour literally engulfing football fields in seconds and meanwhile the only data which is coming in is 911 calls or a reconnaissance where you're driving around the neighborhood how does that help you really understand what the state of impact is And how does that help first responders or firefighters really evacuate ahead of time? And and so uh, that's sort of our our different offerings. And we moved to not just doing response, we understood that it's not just about uh, during the response, helping save a few lives. It's definitely about how do we prevent the loss in the first place? We work with cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Uh, and and we're also in the midst of deployment internationally, wherein wherein what we do is help them do more efficient planning. How do you prevent this loss in the first place? One is just through looking at multiple different scenarios, seeing is your uh, emergency response system actually capable of responding to it? Do I need to increase my budgets? Do I need to add more resources? Do I need to communicate better? So that's what we call uh, our scenario planning. But the second thing is about reducing the loss in the first place. So that's through better city planning, that's through better infrastructure adjustments. Just trying to figure, or even addition of, you know, that HHC water pipe, which would have, you know, uh, caused a lot of chaos to the healthcare in California. So how do you like really prioritize among all those decisions? And and we're doing this not just for governments, We we are expanding and helping people uh, work together in a resilience ecosystem wherein we get in different commercial sectors and governments talking the exact same picture. During a large event, most of the small medium businesses will absolutely go bankrupt. So how do you have people understand that this is the state of what uh, disaster risk is and how do I prepare for it ahead of time? So what, what we do here is, uh, you know, we call this benevolent intelligence wherein we really want to use artificial intelligence for social good. And we really think that we can enable a disaster-free future. And what do I mean by disaster-free? I mean that hazards will keep happening. You'll have seismic events, you'll have floods, you'll have fires, but cities and citizens will be able to immediately bounce back. And that bouncing back would happen because of immediate response during a disaster, through better planning before a disaster, and even through you know, better infrastructure updates. <clears throat> and <clears throat> it's, it wasn't, so that's, that's one concern. Uh, and uh, they were, we we've come here, like I said, we've grown pretty large, but it wasn't very easy uh, coming to where we are. There were definitely a lot of challenges we had to face. And so the two different challenges I'd like to focus on uh, is number one is surround yourself with the right people. Uh, it's always going to be about the people. You have the right people. I think seventy five percent is already half done. And what do I mean by people? I mean by obviously the the team the people you hire. You know we've been lucky. we've hired not just diverse uh, thought processes, but uh, like, you know, diverse in terms of age, gender, race, et cetera, but also in terms of thought process. We have firefighters, we have emergency managers, we have mayors, we have uh, data scientists. We have a collection of a lot of different uh, thought processes which enable us to understand how can we fix this through policy and technology. Uh, And make sure definitely that the bar you'd keep for your mission alignment is as high or maybe even higher than the technical bar or the business bar you're looking for. Don't compromise on that. We've learned that the hard way, that we should never do that. i give you a a quick anecdote of an interview we did in the early stages of One Concern. We had this really, really smart engineer um, come to interview with us, we were really impressed by what he could do. So I interviewed him, and one of my other engineers interviewed him, and uh, he was very rude and condescending throughout the interview, didn't let me complete my sentences uh, and I, I I was taken aback. And after we did a debrief, uh, the the CEO came in, so Ahmed, and he was like, no, that guy was wonderful. He was very nice with me. He was very respectful. So I don't know what was the difference. After looking through our debrief notes, it was pretty obvious that the person who came in had a bias towards being respectful to you know men in particular. And, uh, uh, you know, that was a complete, whether or not he was the most smartest engineer in the world, I couldn't have somebody come in and be dis- dis- disrespectful to my team. And this was not just something I thought of. Ahmed, the entire team agreed that this was something you would always stand by. So culture shouldn't be something light. You should be willing to not hire if somebody is not your culture and really stand uh, stand by it the second uh, people component especially for a mission driven company is definitely uh, surrounding uh, investors so during the seed round it was a little bit hard uh, but ultimately we ended up in a series a we got a lot of interest from multiple different investors now say we we got somebody on the board who told us that you know this is a way you could get more dollars but you'd have to give up your mission of saving lives in, in any sense. You know, that's a complete uh, a no-go for us as well. And so we wanted to make sure that there is complete mission alignment with our investors. And we took a lot of time with the potential investors, asking them, where do you see one concern in five years? What would you do if, if you're not seeing dollar traction in this particular markets? Really just understanding how they would react to this and are they really aligned to our larger mission of saving lives? And so we were pretty lucky getting the right board members on board. And I do think that is something you should always in, uh, insist on, getting to know your board members and understanding that we are all, uh, all in sync on what our uh, mission is. The third one, which is obvious, is, ob- is, is uh, your founders, the co-founders you work with. So I was lucky. We were, I was friends with my previous co-founders. We synced on our values. But, you know, you need to be, I've been so vulnerable with my co-founders several times. I've broken down completely. I've told them all the different flaws I've had, and they've done the exact same thing for me. When things were rough, I could call either Ahmed or Tim at 12 o'clock in the night and freak out and let them know, you know, this is the problem. And they would not take hold it against me. They would let me take a step back, and they would give me their perspective of what I could do better. And I would always do the same for them. Uh, which comes to my second challenge, the emotional burden of, you know, running a, a company. Uh, being a founder is going to be very lonely. Uh, it's going to be very hard because you always want to be the pillar of strength for your employees, for your founders, for your clients, for even sometimes for, for everybody. You know, you always want to be the pillar of strength who pe- to people go to. But there's going to be a lot of uh, ups and downs, many downs more than ups generally in the start. And if you're not careful, it can take a really large toll on you. You need to be able to take a step back and and do what I did similarly in the rejection piece, which was don't take these rejections too hard critically on yourself. Take this as opportunities to really learn from it. How can you take that negativity and convert it into something you can learn from? And it's very important to find the right support system as well. I have, a, I have a very, my family's completely bought in, initially they weren't, uh, and then my friends are completely bought in. You know, and they know that I might not be able to spend six months uh, with them because I'm working so hard on one concern, but they all support me through and through. Um, so it's very important to find the right support system. Otherwise, it will be very, very hard on you. If, if, uh, and despite, I guess, but one last component I want to talk about is don't look too much into the details. Um, when we started a company, the technology was very, very scrappy. We just built a bare bones web application, you know, actually a machine learning algorithm for uh, a MATLAB, a MATLAB server. And we didn't really care about, let's find the most latest technology and let's make it the coolest app ever. What we instead focused on was let's work with the cities and really figure out what exactly should this be. And now, obviously, that's not the case. We have a very, very secure, a lot of microservices, and, and we did invest in technology. But don't overthink that. Focus on what really matters, which is, is the problem even uh, something you want to work on? Uh, and, you know, despite all the different challenges I talked about, I would uh, always do this again. Uh, uh, the excitement I see with the team I've surrounded with, the opportunity I have to just work with phenomenal people to make a difference, you know, always will make, makes it worthwhile. Uh, and, and uh, you know, if I didn't do this, I, I don't even know, would this problem still be solved? Would anybody think about it? Um, I'm hopeful that at some point, you know, five years from now, we're able to create at least a single metric on, on a wall in the company which talks about the number of lives we affected in a positive manner, and that would be completely worth it and so if if there is a particular idea you have or uh, and you really believe that it has to exist, you should go for it, do some research obviously, the research we did with the different cities uh, but but take that step and, and don't and and as long as you are completely committed and you have the right team with you, you know it, it should it should solve itself out so. I think that's pretty much it. <laughs> okay, thank you. So,
0: sure. what have been your biggest challenges in uh, fundraising and capitalizing the company? My guess is probably wasn't trillions of people ready to write you checks. So, what was that experience like, and how did you get to where you guys are today?
1: Uh, so this is probably uh, going a little bit deeper into the. Is it the seed stage or the Series A stage? You're just asking about how I brought the idea. To market. Started
0: and how you've been able to progress to get where you are. Raising raising uh, capital for an early stage company is always very challenging, and you guys have obviously done a really great job. And I'm wondering what you learned through that and what were the keys to success.
1: So just to repeat the question: uh, What were the? How did we manage to get investors on board a idea? And what were the large keys to success? I, I think it was first, uh, you know, we, we did a lot of research ourselves. You know, it, it wasn't just trying to build something wherein we don't really understand whether the market wants. We worked very closely with the cities, uh, and that coupled with Ahmed's experience in the floods, you know, we we understood that there is a big problem here. We knew that market research is probably not our expertise then, so we actually worked with different Stanford grads to help us understand what does you know a TAM or a SAM mean, how would we quantify this, how do you look into the dollars invested in disasters, how do we speak uh, the language of an investor. And so honestly, if I had to shorten it, it's mostly about perspective. I think we are missing the perspective of how we would the perspective we had with the cities was pretty clear you know they got us they understood why it had to happen but we were missing that connection with investors which was exactly how could you convert this idea into a feasible solution so the 9 months we took actually were just trying to keep iterating on the product keep iterating on what the packaging would look like how, how would this be a business and I, I i would say at the end of the 9 months we meaning you know, it it did work out so yeah sorry
0: um, I have a question about sales strategy. Um, so I imagine that if you're a
1: city or a state government or something like this, uh, there's an obvious benefit to disaster preparedness, but you don't know when the next disaster is going to be, and thus you don't know when you receive that benefit. So with that in mind and with the fact that uh, like cities' budgets are always constrained, um, how do you go into a pitch meeting with potential clients to just sort of make the investment work uh, their <laughs> good question so uh, cities budgets are limited but how do we sort of uh, how does a sales strategy still work despite that so uh, how I, uh, what i would talk about is uh, now one of the people component i didn't talk about was actually the the customers you choose especially for a mission driven company you want to find the right partners who are also aligned to your mission because we, we can very quickly decide to choose a small city who really doesn't care about this, who's just testing this out, and who's not completely committed into making this happen. So what we did was really find uh, cities like San Francisco and LA, who not just would be big uh, use cases, wherein we could go to other cities and let them know that this is why you should focus on it, but because they had a large population and a large risk, they were very, very uh, incentivized on how we could sort of make this happen. Now, city budgets are are definitely still going to be difficult uh, to maneuver. Uh, And so what we're trying to do right now from a resilience ecosystem perspective is help 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 cities understand that disasters don't just happen to governments. How can commercial sector come and pitch in to help governments move forward? So if I actually go ahead and repair that one uh, pipe which affects my industry, why shouldn't I sort of uh, put in at least one third of that money and help the city out? And many people went through it. It's a complex series of making sure different sectors have different uh, value props. So that's what we're doing now. Uh, yeah, thank you for the talk. I think it really inspiring what your is doing. I was wondering with how many cities or regions you're currently actively working? Yes, so how many cities are we currently working with? We have around eight cities we're working with. Uh, these are all pretty large cities. Uh, and uh, I, some of them we've talked about publicly, uh, state of Arizona, Seattle, so Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, and so, and, and some international cities as well. So, yeah. Go ahead.
0: Um, so you mentioned that uh, your software, your platform provides like a real-time analysis like so. Right. So what kind of data do
1: you track? When do you get that kind of data Does it tap into, like, the certain privacy model? Yeah. So what data do we pro- uh, track, and is there a privacy law which we are, uh, you know, which is present through it? So all of the data we look at is, uh, there's a complex series of uh, data we look at. We look at both man-made information and natural environment information. I'm sorry, I forgot to talk about that. Uh, So every information regarding a building, what's the age, what's the material, what's the square footage. We look at last collected soil samples, elevation. And then you also look at the third component, which is live data, sensors and satellites. So we look at river gauges, uh, seismographs, weather data, et cetera. So it's actually a very fairly comprehensive amount of information we have. And we're very upfront with our cities that we don't want any PII information. All we want to do is ensure that we are helping rescue. So we notice on the platform, we could technically do building-level predictions, but we obscure it through a census block-level prediction instead, unless the building itself is owned by the by the person, and then we provide a more granular prediction. So. How do you handle any concerns that come with, you know, any industries paying for, like, uh, for this, this service and they might get preference in a disaster that responders go to them first. Yeah. So the question is uh, what if an industry pays more dollars and then they get a priority in response so how do, you, uh, how do you deal with it? I think the best way is to make sure that the risk itself is transparent. You know, As long as all the different players understand that this exactly is what's going on and the city is always where we, we talk to first. It's always going to be about how can we make the city better. So as long as we are making sure that that's the first lens we uh, prioritize on, other things sort itself out, so. Okay. Um,
0: how do you verify
1: the accuracy of your models and how are you going to help developing countries where maybe those data sets don't even exist? Mm-hmm. Uh, va- validation of accuracy, uh, this is a very hard questions. but uh, validation of accuracy and how do we uh, create data in developing countries where data doesn't exist? So our validation process is fairly complex. So technically, the fire model was completed last year, but we haven't deployed yet because we are going through a very, very rigorous series of validation, uh, going across all the 500 fires in California and seeing where, how exactly it performed. Standard validation, standard crosshaul validation. Uh, we also do event-based validation, wherein we completely take out an event information and see whether or not we're overfitting to a particular event we put a lot of effort in collecting damage whenever an event happens. So we were there when the Indonesia earthquake happened. We were there when the Mexico earthquake happened. We were there when the Alaska earthquake happened. We collected around 40,000 buildings of damage information in Indonesia, not just to figure out, okay, is our model right? Is our model not right? But also to understand the localized uh, information surrounding that. The second one was how would we create uh, data in a place which is doesn't have uh, information. So we're actually deploying in an international developing city which doesn't have a ton of data. Uh, and what we do is, so how do we get this information? Some is public, some is private, and some is uh, you know from the from the uh, clients themselves. But a big component of the data is is generate ourselves. You know features which we statistically infer in the middle. There's a lot of gaps for some buildings. You might have the cost of the home. For some buildings, you might have the, lot, the height of the home. It's not necessary that all of them are filled. So there's actually many models and statistical inferences to even help fill those gaps. That's one way we could do it, just looking at corollary information. But the second way is we create the data ourselves. So uh, to put it in short, it's sort of like a Google Street View, but for buildings and people. So I, I don't want to talk too much about it, but that's how we are doing the developed, uh, developed cities. So. Go ahead. As a fellow immigrant, you would like to form a company. What challenges did you face and how did you overcome them? Yeah. uh, So as a fellow immigrant, what were your major challenges and how did I overcome them? Uh, So I was a little lucky. uh, Unlike Ahmed, uh, my family was more or less on board and they were like, you know, you do what you have to do. It's, I, I, mean, I don't know if you have this similar issue where you have to convince your family about the risk you're going to take, but that's going to be a exciting challenge. Uh, the other challenges are just, uh, uh, like I talked about, uh, it's number one is also you know, the per- whether would people want to invest in a company which looks the way we do, you know, and, and we are selling to government, you know, CEOs, uh, you know, how is that going to work out? So the perception was, uh, was something which, which hurt us a little bit, I would say, but we got through it by just, you know, making the right relationships, actually making cities happy, and then after that, it just becomes a blur. You know, nobody actually think, looks at it anymore. And then obviously, the visa issues, the debt you would probably have to think about uh, because you already come here, uh, but the, all of that will sort itself out uh, as, if you do have an idea which you really believe in. So yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, as three technical co-founders, how did you think about splitting roles and developing specialties within the company uh-huh. and external facing?
1: So three technical co-founders, how did we split up the roles? Um, I was the computer science background, so naturally, I think I, I naturally gravitated towards helping on the technology side and, and you know being the chief technology officer. Ahmed was the one who was super passionate, who really connected with People who really had the vision through, and it was natural that you know he he would be the CEO. We were completely on board, and a third co-founder, Tim, he actually told us about the cities. He told us he since he's from a milit- from the Air Force, he he talked about how there were emergency operation centers in the Air Force, and there might be something similar in uh, in cities, in states, etc. So he sort of helped create the product, I would say, at the beginning. Um, it wasn't too hard. We just chose what we liked and we went through it. There wasn't, I don't think there was too much of an ego issue because just the mission came first. And we just showed that well, this is what we do well. So let's just do this. So, yeah. Sorry,
0: go ahead. You have mentioned that environment uh, environment's um, investors are different. So how can we reach these investors who, um, who are taking care of environment's uh, I and
1: prospects. So how do I reach out to how did we reach out to investors who uh, who think about this problem is that is that correct? Uh, I think it was more uh, word of mouth as well as talking to the different people we knew, like which which investors would gravitate towards this particular idea? just looking through investment thesis as well. that's how that's how we did it. And then we just really used a lot of different connections we made. Uh, internally, we hustled a lot. We talked to whoever would would be willing to give us that connection. We called LinkedIn several people as well, uh, and I think that's how we made the network. Honestly. Yeah.
0: Do you find yourself wanting more basic science data, like a kind of realistic virtual earth geology, realistic virtual earth hydrology, realistic virtual earth atmosphere? Um, And how would that improve your predictions and allow you to connect the cities more richly?
1: Good question. So uh, should there be more investment in the natural sciences part? And how would that help cities? So we are working on something called a Resilience Alliance, wherein we actually work very closely with universities. We understand that all of this, you know, all of the science behind it, we can't do it ourselves. So we're working with the University of Michigan. We actually are also working with the Stanford Urban Resilience Initiative, multiple different uh, folks wherein we would talk about a particular focus and really invest on the natural science component together. So that's how we do it. It's It's, it's very important because it can't just be us building all of it. The accuracy may not go as high as we would want to then. Yeah. Right, go ahead.
0: Could you comment a little bit on how you see the company scaling over the next couple of years, next year or two even. You know, is it more cities? Is it greater penetration within the eight cities that you already have? that would be my first question. And then the second question, which is along the same lines, you know what's the long-term goal? I mean, you have investors; they're going to want exit at some point. Mm-hmm. You hope to have a strategic buyer, or you know what? How do you envision it near term, and then kind of five years out? I know that's a big question.
1: So let me take the uh, second. Uh, can you repeat the first question a bit? I just want to make sure. Okay. So for this particular year, we've decided we don't want to do any more cities. We want to go very deep down into, into the city space, get in all the different commercial sectors and governments on board to talk the same language. So make sure that resilience and safety becomes a top priority and people are talking about that in that language. Uh, that's, that's, that's what we're working on. I don't, from the, what is the exit strategy? A lot of really large companies, are doing really phenomenal work in terms of the convenience space. So now everything is super convenient. We can get food conveniently. We can, we can drive uh, to work conveniently. But the safety space, which is actually probably higher on the Maslow's triangle, uh, is, is not, there's very few companies thinking about it. In healthcare is an example. You know, we really believe that we have an opportunity to actually be a large business. We're not thinking about exit right now in any sense. We're definitely thinking about how do we make this problem actually be solved? Um, that's, that's a long way. Consideration yeah. at
0: the very beginning of the a nonprofit, free
1: for-profit. So did you think about structuring this as a nonprofit versus for-profit? We actually thought about that. Um, uh, and we, We had a few, and I would say that actually the cities gave us advice. Uh, So the cities actually helped us a lot. They helped us not just in creating the product. They even helped us figure out what the pricing was. You know, we went to them and said we would only charge this. And they were like, that's too low. No one's going to take you seriously. And you need to build something here, which we can go back to. And the third thing they actually helped us out was uh, non-profit versus for-profit. So we considered that they were like, if you do a non-profit, Uh, Unfortunately, you won't get the velocity which which you'd want, Uh, and we want to be able to create an impactful company uh, with the velocity and solve this problem in a lifetime. Like we don't want to keep hearing the issues of climate change and disasters, you know, in several decades later. So that's why we chose for a for-profit route. I was about your monetization strategy and uh, uh, <clears throat> what's the ROI for the government? So, uh, monetization strategy, ROI for the government. The ROI for the government is twofold. Uh, number one is obviously in the lives uh, which could get saved and the livelihoods which are impacted. But number two is really understanding what exact dollars do you need to invest in terms of infrastructure which equally benefits everybody. You can't keep having uh, hurricanes like Harvey, which keep having the federal government pour dollars over and over again. It's a cyclic issue, and there's no way of uh, coming back out of it. So there is a conversation of both the dollars saved and the lives lost. That's that's sort of how the government scheme works out. A monetization strategy, uh, I should talk to you in pr- uh, par- private, but there's a lot of different angles on how would commercial sector and govtech work together. Yeah, sure. Have
0: you thought about doing a national version instead of just like a city, city
1: by city? Uh, a global version, a global model, that's what you're talking about.
0: What about national, like one step up? Like, what's, it, what's it? the U.S. government?
1: Oh, it 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 oh, working with FEMA, for example. Yeah. We we did think about it. Uh, actually, we had several advanced conversations with FEMA, uh, and they're pretty interested. Um, but... Disaster generally happen to cities and less to FEMA. I think FEMA comes in when it becomes really large and tries to and provides dollars to help the cities recover. The whole process of recovery itself—you know, what resources do you need? How do your first responders work with? It is very, very state and city driven. So that's why we decided to go that way to so, to uh, understand what we could do there.
0: One more question. Yes. Go Time yeah. for one more. Go
1: ahead. Just have a comment. Actually, I was at a talk a few weeks ago. There was a politician, engineer politician from Taiwan. They spent eight billion dollars on an information system for a flood prediction and landslide analysis around seven thousand villages. Eight billion. Eight billion. Okay, that's news. I have this contact, but I mean <laughs> tremendous opportunity outside. So we should look into that, Ben. probably. Uh but thank you for letting me know. Yes. <laughs>
0: The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production supported by the venture capital firm DFJ. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.